Hello, and welcome to All Things Considered, a podcast where we discuss important issues with fascinating guests through the lens of critical thinking. My name is Christopher DiCarlo, and on today's show, we have Nate Phelps. Nate is the son of Pastor Fred Phelps of the Westboro Baptist Church. You might remember these folks. They were the ones who used to pick it outside of funerals for veterans, and they would hold up signs that said, God hates fags. They were a very hardcore right-wing Christian group, and Nate decided he would have none of this group as soon as he turned 18. In fact, once the clock hit midnight on his 18th birthday, Nate was out of there. He left the family, and he never looked back. In fact, he led quite an interesting life since then. He started to become a secularist leader, moved to Canada, and now is a champion of LGBT rights. He's a fascinating person with a, uh, a number of interesting stories, and I'm sure will keep you fascinated and wanting more. So without further ado, let's get thinking. The power of our democracy. Well, thank you, Nate Phelps, joining me all the way from where you living now. I'm in uh, the the southeast corner of British Columbia in uh, Canada. So, what would be the biggest, largest city closest to you? Well, the closest to me is you're going into Alberta. Calgary is probably the closest big city, about four hours east of here. I'm in a little town called Cranbrook in British Columbia. Oh, very good. You were were in Calgary when I was on the book tour, correct? I was, yeah. I lived there for five years. Yes, that's right. So, Nate, we met at uh, Imagine No Religion conference. Yeah, that was it. Very first one? Yeah, it was the very first one. Uh Right, right, right. And that's when I found out your story uh, of of being uh, the son of Fred Phelps, uh, the Westboro Baptist uh, Church, uh, if I could say infamous. and some to some degree, that's a little mild. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a little mild. And you you told everybody to to like a stunned audience and a standing ovation the the story of your life of living in a fun, in a fundamentalist Christian family and getting out of there right at the the stroke of midnight on your 18th birthday. And I'm just wondering if you could. I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but I I really, I I think you would be doing a great service to humanity if we could just get it chronicled here. I always worry about that when I, when I retell it, because I always worry that I miss too many important points, but yeah, so I, I was born, uh, my father, Fred Phelps, I was the sixth of uh, 13 children and we grew up in Topeka, Kansas. And he was one of the things I, I, I try to stress early on in the telling of the story is to us, it was normal, the environment we were, we were up in. And that's true for, I think anybody growing up, you know, when you're a young child, that's the environment you're in. That's where you get your information about the world. And so uh, the information we were getting uh, was that the world was evil and that we were this, this outpost of um, God's grace and there were specific standards and expectations that the Bible laid out. And, you know, we were from the time, literally from the time we were born, the first Sunday that we were home from the hospital, we were in, uh, sitting in the pews in, at his church twice every Sunday and getting this message. Um, and it was a, what I would call a, a hyper-Calvinist theology. Of course, we didn't know that at the time, right? And uh, the centerpiece of that is is that uh, Calvinistic idea that of uh, absolute predestination that basically says uh, God's the one because nobody has a has the the power or the wherewithal to um, choose to be saved, which is runs absolutely contrary to mainstream Christianity, right? It does. I, I had no idea, and he was hyper. He's like. You're fixed. Your your fate is locked, as it were. That's right. Yeah. Uh, five point two Cal, uh, doctrines of Calvinism, and so and he was very, um, you know, any any ideas that were out there, even though we didn't hear them because we, we weren't attending any other churches, 
he he would he would take you know one particular version of Christianity and he would tear it down and he would he would talk about the the error in their in their theology and 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 then that explained why they were all going to hell right so you you're hearing that message it's building up as as you're growing up in that environment um and you get to the point where you're isolated from the world uh because of your theology but also because of the um system that he had put in place when we were growing up he you know cut us off from my my mother's side of the family and then he um stopped having anything to do with his sister and and his parents uh so there was there was nothing in that environment that would would uh push back and challenge any of his ideas right so you're fairly insulated from the from external influence on a number of levels then right yeah but the interesting part about that is a lot of people say so you're homeschooled or did you know go to a a, a religious school and and no we we went to public school but again his influence and his uh, you know if any anybody who's had an opportunity to see him or to listen to him he's his personality is overwhelming he's a very intelligent person but absolutely uh, abhors any kind of contradictory input or or um response to what to his message right so it, it was dangerous knowing what we now do about uh psychological predispositions right can you hazard a guess was he a narcissist? Was he a psychopath? What could we could we analyze him according to our current understanding of of mental health issues? Have you talked to any people who have said, "Wow, it sounds like your father showed traits of yeah, classic narcissist." He was a narcissist. Okay, okay, and and a grandiose grandiose narcissist. That's yeah, that's exactly right. And he was, and it got him in trouble in a lot of areas of his life. Uh, which led to so many difficulties in that environment as we were growing up because he um it started out he he one of the neighbor's dogs came into our property and he shot it and killed it ended up in court over that and decided to um represent himself and he was successful so that led him to to the conclusion that he needed to go to law school because that was his calling so he attended law school and and started his practice uh, and we were all well at least i was still very young at that time within a couple of years because of that tendency that he has he got himself in trouble with the uh the kansas bar and they suspended his license for two years so there was no income coming in so then we started going out and selling candy to bring money into the household under the uh i mean the message we were putting out there is we were we were out there selling candy to, to pay for a new piano and organ for the church. And then the years passed and people started wondering why we hadn't bought that piano yet. So other excuses were, were made. And so the primary source of income in that house for the better part of seven years was that candy sales, you know, because there were 13 of us there. And there was, so it was a good business opportunity. And where would you sell the candy? Well, it started out, you know, you go around to the neighborhood around our house and then it expanded and pretty soon we we're selling all across the city of Topeka. And then when that started to dry up because we kept hitting the same places over and over, then we went to Lawrence and we went to Kansas city and then we ended up in Wichita. So, um, we went as far as, as Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and, uh, Omaha, Nebraska in our uh, search for new territory, right. To, to sell it. So interesting. And where, like into, into what type of establishments would you, would you go into what that's actually pretty interesting you know we would go house door to door and then we would go into uh, business areas and the interesting thing about that is you know i tell this story today some of the stuff that we did and it's just nobody can believe it because we would go into like manufacturing plants and we'd find a door somewhere you know in the back because if you tried to go through the offices you couldn't get in but we would find ways in and be selling to all the employees that were back there and some of these were very dangerous areas for a young kid to be running around, right? But we we went wherever we could to find people who would buy candy from us, right? And uh, suffered the uh, the response. Sometimes people got pretty upset with us for being where we, we shouldn't have been. Um, but yeah, anywhere. And and then one of our our most successful areas was uh, on a Friday or Saturday night. We'd go to uh, into the bars. 
and, you know, especially in the, the Kansas City area, they had at that time, I think it was 12th Street had all these bars. And uh, mm-hmm. it always struck me as humorous. We, you know, we would be in there selling candy for a church, for the church, <laughs> the, the one true church in the whole world. And there would be uh, dancers dancing behind us while we're selling candy, right? Like Strip down and that kind of thing. Like strip bars? Strippers. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's a business model. That's a business model. That's exactly right. Let's get those innocent kids into strip bars where you got a bunch of guys getting lubed up on a Saturday night thinking, oh, right, right, Jesus. I forgot about Jesus. Okay, I better give these kids some money. Yeah. And how? what were the ages? How old were you guys? Well, the youngest, the way the, the model we had was you'd take one of the older kids and then put them with one of the younger ones because the younger ones did a better job of actually getting results because they were young, you know, of course. Yeah. And then cuter. Yeah. Exactly. So we would be there as their protector or their overseer. And of course we weren't really old enough to be taken on that kind of responsibility ourselves as the older children. Right. So there were a number of times where, where bad things happened that uh, shouldn't, we shouldn't have ever even been in that situation, but uh, by and large, we survived it. Wow. So, so, Dad is just playing the survival game while his law license is suspended. He's just doing what he can. Is that the deal? I got to make money. I got a bunch of kids. I'm going to put them to work. Is that the yeah, idea? So he, he did that and then he got his license back. And then within a couple more years, he got in trouble. and He got upset with a court reporter mm-hmm. and just went on this um, vendetta against her. And he was just doing all kinds of things that ended him up in trouble again. And the, the court concluded that he had a deliberate vendetta against his court reporter. And so eventually he got barred from the state of Kansas, but he's by that time he had a federal license. So he was practicing in the federal courts and then a few more years passed and he got in trouble with a, a whole raft of, of judges in the district that he practiced in uh, because he basically said they were all crooks and, and that they were, were not, uh, you know, that they were mistreating him because they, they didn't like him, right? So by the time that all ended, he su- uh, surrendered his license in order to prevent my couple of my older siblings, who by then were lawyers also, uh, from losing their licenses. So he quit practicing, but he was still heavily involved because uh, another part of that whole model there that we grew up with was we knew from a very early age that we were going to go to Washburn University, and then we were going to go to Washburn Law School, and then we were going to practice law in my father's law offices, right? So he'd mapped it all out. And his authority as our father and as our pastor was what he drew on to insist that he had the power to make those kind of decisions in our lives, right? Of course. Of course. In terms of being a grandiose, malignant narcissist, what disciplinary tactics was he using to keep you guys in line? I know the story. I, I want, I want our viewers and listeners to hear. Well, he, he, he was a big fan of, of spare the rod, spoil the child kind of language on in uh, the Psalms and, and other places in the Bible. So he, uh, when we were young, he used barber strap and he used that so frequently and, and uh, aggressively that the, the end of the strap, started, you know, fraying. And, and so it turned into a sort of a, a cat of nine tails type situation, right? So when it wrapped around your backside, it would tear the skin on the side of your legs. And so um, I don't know the specifics of how he came to the decision, but he um, one day called us all in and, and uh, showed us a, um, a Maddox handle, which is, it's kind of, if anybody knows what a Maddox is, it's like a, a large axe head on one end and, and hoe head on the other half of it. And and the handle itself is probably about three and a half feet long. And it's got a, a at the base, it's got a circumference of about um, 13, 14 inches. So it was bigger than a baseball bat, about as thick around as the, the thick end of the baseball bat, right? And uh, so, and he would use that, he would swing it like a baseball bat, He'd get, you know, rear back and that's what he used to beat the kids. And he wouldn't stop at, you know, just the, the backside. But if he didn't think he was doing enough damage, he would go down the, the backs of the legs all the way down behind the knees. 
Um, and there were many times that, that we would be unable to sit down for two or three days, not entire for, you know, from the back of the knees up to the top of our, or the bottom of our back was, was black and blue because he would go, he would start out, you know, and sometimes, you know, kids get in trouble. They do things that they're not supposed to, right? But he couldn't control his rage and, you know, that part of his personality and he would just go crazy and, and just start swinging it as fast as he could. And, and anytime, the few times my mom tried to intervene and, and, uh, mitigated it at all he would just raise at her that you know that the bible says that if you beat them they sh surely shall not surely die and i got to tell you that was a terrifying thought to realize that in the middle of one of his rages that he was relying on the word of this god that it didn't matter what he did that he would be okay it'd be okay and the kids would survive right because there was a part of your brain that said well maybe god's pissed off at us too and so he's just gonna let us die it was that kind of thinking right so it's a pretty frightening experience when you're in the midst of it. it's like men do evil no worse than when they do so in the name of a god right because you're you're absolutely justified exactly and you have you can be absolved yeah. of of responsibility if if it goes south and i met and that's exactly how he would have viewed it had that happened you know if one of the kids had died he would have Wow. So inherently, right there, therein lies when we talk about, you know, critical thinking and ethics, if ever there is an example of the dangers of dogmatic thinking, the dangers of thinking, I'm so right. It, it, it's impossible for me to be wrong. When you can act with that kind of assurance or certainty, what's going to reel you in? Did anything ever reel dad in? I, I wouldn't think so. Not if he can go to that level of child abuse. I don't think there could be anything. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, like, okay, so his, his spouse was unable to because the, the model there is that the woman, you know, the husband is the head of the house and the woman is, is uh, subservient to him. So that you're not going to get any kind of pushback there. Uh, we had some symbolic um, deacons in the church. We, there were a couple other families that attended the church and they were, the situation was such that the one or two times that they pushed back at all, the message came back loud and clear that any more of that and, and you're kicked out of the church. Oh, which for anybody, for anybody who was there, that was a terrifying proposition in itself, right? Because if you Absolutely. get cast out of the world, then you're not under the protection of that church anymore. Right. 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 So threats of excommunication were pretty, pretty front and center for anybody who rocked the boat a little bit. Yep. That's right. And we knew, you know, the kids learned early on that if, if we left that place, mm -hmm. there was a price to pay if we made that decision. Of course. Of course. Nate, as you're aging and you're moving, the, the family is evolving. Was there a single event that occurred that made you realize I'm out of here? This is This is unacceptable. Or was it a series of graduated steps or if I had to point to a specific event it was that my older brother Mark because my oldest brother Fred tried to leave and my father found him and, and forced him back and then my my oldest sister she left when she was about 17 and a half mm -hmm. and he he found out where she was and, and uh, put together a posse which consisted of him and, and most of the kids and we right rushed the house, pulled up like a couple, you know, like commandos in, in a couple <laughs> cars and right. parked crazy and ran out and literally kidnapped her back home. And she was, she was forced, she was locked. I shouldn't say locked because the door wasn't locked, but she was forced to stay in a room upstairs um, and forced to fast because she was a little overweight. And that was another issue that he made such a deal out of because the Bible says that you're supposed to, you know, your body's a temple and that kind of thing. So forced her to fast and, and was beating her mercilessly on a regular basis. And so we're watching all that happen. And then my, my, my second older brother, Mark left and he did the same thing, went after him, brought him back. And, and as fate would have it, when he brought him back home, he had his law office in the same building as the church in our house at that time. And some clients had just pulled up right as they were pulling up. 
So he, my father was distracted with him and my brother, Mark walked through the office, through the church and out the back door and, and left and never came back. So wow. that was the, that was the moment. I think I was about 16 and a half in. That was the moment I realized that it was possible, but I wasn't going to make the same mistake that my sister made because my father still had legal authority until we were 18. So I started planning about six months ahead of, of uh, my 18th birthday and went out and bought an old used car and started slowly packing my stuff and hiding it in the garage. Sorry, do, do you think while you were thinking this through, was he in his mind thinking, Nate's going to be 18 soon. He can legally leave when he's 18. Do you think he was anticipating you in any way? Or were you looking for that? How, how paranoid were you that this guy was capable of doing the, you know, these horrific things? Well, he just flat out asked me on a, a number of occasions because uh, by that time, even though you couldn't be aggressively opposed to him, I wasn't making any overtures of trying to maintain a relationship or, or be constructively supportive of, of what he was doing. Right. So, um, so he, uh, he asked several times, said, you, you, you're planning on leaving, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no, not really not a thing in that environment because of his volatile temper. Um, honesty just wasn't an option. You, you made decisions and you acted in your own self-interest because if you tried to be honest about anything and it ran contrary to what he wanted to hear or, or believed, um, violence would follow, right? So you just learn to protect yourself. And if you had to be dishonest about it, you were. So I don't think he was too surprised that I did it, but uh, apparently he got pretty upset when he found out. So Right. And where did you go? So uh, clock is ticking away, ticking away. You're waiting for midnight. Clock strikes 12. You're 18. Take us from there. What, what, what are you doing? So I had uh, been talking to, I had some friends that uh, owned a, a gas station that was near the high school that I went to and spent a lot of time there. And so I had confided in them and the guy said, and I said, I don't have any idea where I'm going. When he asked, he said, well, look, if you need somewhere to stay, you can sleep in the gas station but you have to stay hidden. So I, the first three nights I was gone, I, I slept in the bathroom of, of this gas station. And then my, uh, my older brother's mother-in-law-to-be found out. And so she got in touch with me and I ended up uh, staying at her place. And eventually I got, um, when it moved into an apartment with my older brother and, and his wife by that time. And, um, that was another part of that whole thing is you, you didn't learn to think for yourself and to plan and that kind of thing, because all of that was done for you. Right. So, right. There was, I was pretty naive and ignorant about the real world when I left. I bet. Yeah. You'd have to grow up pretty fast. Yeah. There was a place called Woolco that was kind of the, the Kmart of yep. Woolworths at the time. Right. That's right. And, uh, I remember when I got my first check and, saw that they took some of my money away. I was pretty upset about that because again, completely naive, no awareness about this notion of taxes and social responsibility and that kind of stuff. Right. So, so, so you're at Wolco. Yeah. And what, what happens after that? So, um, my brother was working for a printing company and then he moved. Um, all right. There's a lot of moving parts there. So, <laughs> One of my older sisters left and she ended up moving in with us. And then we both got a, a job in Kansas city with a, a uh, law office there. So we moved there and then my brother got a job um, the, in the same business in the printing business that moved him to St. Louis. So he le leapfrogged over us and, and then <laughs> Christmas time of, uh, I think it would have been 77. Uh, just before Christmas time, the, the law office was raided by federal agents. And, and that's when we found out that the senior partner was was a, a mob lawyer there in Kansas City. Oh. So, so that job opportunity started to dwindle. So I ended up moving to, to St. Louis and went to work for the same company that my brother was working for. Um, eight months passed and we decided we were going to move back to Kansas City and start our own printing company there. And 
we went from that to we opened another one in Topeka and then um by 1981 uh, we saw opportunity out in Southern California so we moved out there and and ended up opening a chain of shops out in Southern California. Oh, very good. Now did you ever go back and see your father? Did you guys ever meet? Did you reconcile in any way? Did you write to each other? Anything like that? No. I went through about uh, three years of counseling when I got to the point where I realized that I needed it. Cause you know, as far as I was concerned, I, w I was fine. I'd, I'd gotten out of there alive and survived and, and then stuff started leaking out. Right. And, uh, so when I got married and then my first child came along and all those pressures come up and then you start seeing, you start engaging in the world from the perspective of a father instead of a, a son and a lot of, a lot of stuff started coming up. So I found a counselor or, uh, I don't think it was a psychiatrist, were they psychologists that are a step below psychiatrists? Yeah. They can't prescribe medication. Yeah. But he had also had a degree in theology, so I thought he would be a good fit because at that time I hadn't, I hadn't considered the possibility that that there wasn't a God, but I was willing to consider the possibility that maybe my old man didn't get it all right. Sure. <laughs> and I don't know if that was a rival thing or what, but but uh, so in the midst of that, um, you know, there was some communication that was all one sided. It was basically me just processing all of my thoughts but never actually reached out to him with it but then when he started this um this campaign against uh gays yes he was getting a lot of attention on radio programs and that kind of thing so i was coming home late one night about 11 o'clock at night from work and i'm listening to one of these talk show radios that i listen to a lot and he's on there well i had i thought it was pre-recorded and they were just playing it because, like I said, it was late at night, right? So it would have been like one o'clock in the morning there in Kansas. So on a whim, I called the station thinking I could talk to the talk show host there and just let him know who I was and talk about that yeah, a little bit. For sure. uh, it was live. <laughs> and he said, well, do you want to talk to him? I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. So I... So I hit him with one of those verses that had always bothered me because the, the last chapter uh, or the last few verses in, in Romans one, where um, Paul delineates all of these, these behaviors that are going to send you to hell. And then he starts uh, the second chapter in Romans talking about how basically he's saying we're, we're all doomed to uh, hell, but the grace of God says that none of that matters, right? And so that was the, the verse that I tried to have some kind of interaction with him about. And, and he just flew into a rage because someone was pushing back against him. And that someone wasn't just a stranger. That was, it was his son. Mm -hmm. And he was furious and he got off the, the radio program and that was that. He called me some names and then hung up. So that's amazing. After all that time, that was his reaction yep. to his son calling. Yep. That is incredible. What year do you remember? Well, they started this campaign, I think, in 91. So 91, 92, maybe, is when that happened. Because it was fairly early on. And why is he going after the gay community? Is it Leviticus? Like, what, what is it that's, you know, pushing his buttons about the whole gay agenda? Like, he could have picked on any number of, you know, marginalized groups. Why go after them? Honestly, I think it was, um, he kind of fell into it. Because there was a park there in Topeka where, where gay people would meet because that was the nature of the beast back then. You couldn't be out because you would be, you know, ostracized and, and harmed in a lot of cases, right? So they had to find ways to meet. And that park was near his house. And so he fabricated a, um, a story where one of his grandkids was assaulted or approached by a gay person. And so he started pushing the city council to do something about it. And then when they didn't respond, he put together these uh, kind of handmade signs that were compared to the stuff that they ended up with. They were pretty chintzy. And he stood on that corner. Well, again, it wasn't so much the message because, you know, Kansas is a fairly conservative place. Right. But it was his delivery. It was his hatefulness and his cruelty that people pushed back against. Right. Well. He doesn't understand that. He, 
to him, it's they're challenging the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't have any choice but to fight back, right? And they're all evil for challenging him at all. So, um, actually, this whole thing, when it first started, it was all fairly local, and he started going out after anywhere he knew that there was a gay person. There was a, a restaurant in town that the owner was gay, so he they started picketing there and harassing customers that were coming and going. And and to do towards what towards what end? What does he want them to do? Like, what's what's the end game? Ultimately, the message that he had out there was as long as America is doing anything in the direction of giving equality to or recognizing the humanity of people in the LGBT community, then they are in opposition to God's will and ah, it's his okay. responsibility and obligation to hold that up there and force them to make a change. And this is Old Testament stuff. Yeah. So anything bad that happened to anybody in that country, and then pretty soon it's it's Canada, and then it's uh, Germany. Anywhere that anything pops up where it looks like they might have a little bit of, of humanity towards gay people, suddenly they're, you know, God hates them. So he's got a, a website to say yeah. God hates Germany. He's got one that says God hates Canada. And, you know, they're just popping up all over the place. Yeah. And it's just his... He's got targets. That's right. Oh, this is interesting. For those who are listening, uh, this is the infamous Fred Phelps we're talking about. And if you've ever seen images of people holding up signs, the most uh, prominent one would be God hates fags, correct? That would be yeah. the most identifiable one. Yeah. Was that his very first one? I want to know, can you remember think, what, think, what? Going back to that that first picket, it was a very rudimentary compared to the signs they have now, but that that was what the sign said. God hates fags. And there were a couple more there, right? Interesting. And Interesting. then they, they started a web page that was for the church. And the the address to the website was godhatesfags.com. So he would, he got a lot of mileage out of that, that phrase, right? So. Oh, I'm sure. Were Was there interest generated? In other words, did the church see an uptick on its website? Did they see an uptick in membership because of this fomenting against the gay community or did it go down? Do you, do you recall? Well, there was probably a two or three year period where it stayed fairly localized or regionalized. Right. And then that young man, Matthew Shepard was, was killed in, in Wyoming and they showed up there with their signs and was part of that circus. That was his, um, Funeral. In in Wyoming, yeah, Did they show up in, in Wyoming. They showed up there, and that propelled them into the the national spotlight. And then they just kept coming up with new ways to enrage the sensibilities of the general public, right? And then when that war started in in uh, in Iraq, and the soldiers started dying, and then they started going to their funerals. And they were going to the funerals of high, you know, visible, um, recognizable gay people who had died. <laughs> oh, with that same message that because America supports gay people, God sending the soldiers home in body bags. That was yeah, their argument. Right. And so then that, of course, turned into that lawsuit that got all the way to the Supreme Court that they won on uh, First Amendment rights. Um, but all of that just got the entire country and then other countries in an uproar, right? Like he came up here to Canada once. I don't know if you recall that that incident and in, I think it was in Manitoba where that that young man got his head cut off on that on that Greyhound bus. Yeah, Vincent Lee was the name of the assailant, yeah. Yeah. And they were coming up to basically say that, you know, God sent that killer because Canada was uh, by that time we, oh, we were allowing gay marriage. Interesting. Right? I did not know they worked that in. No. Yeah, good. Points for cleverness, I guess. When all this is going on and you're watching this go on and it has international attention at this point, how deeply facepalmed are you at this point about the whole issue? And do you feel helpless that there's very little you can do about it? Or are, were you doing something at that time? Well, when it, when it first started, I, I got a few calls from like the local newspapers and, and uh, radio stations there in Topeka 
and you know talked a little bit about it, but I really wasn't confrontational towards them. And at the same time, I'm kind of on my own journey. I had started pulling away from the idea of God and at least his God and gotten involved with an evangelical free church there in, in California and uh, primarily so that my kids were socialized. Of course. Um, sure. That was a big thing for me that I didn't want them feeling isolated like we did. Um, but exposing myself to that, then I started asking myself the questions that, that ultimately led me to the conclusion that uh, just because theirs was a kinder version of a myth, it still was a myth, right? So, but I'm still in the midst of that. And I remember distinctly when one of the first calls I got from a radio station, I was at some friend's house who I went to church with, right? So I was still involved in, in the, the whole religious thing and was unwilling because one of the things that I realized it took me literally decades is I continued to hold on to this idea that if I just said the right thing or did the right thing, that I could reconcile with my family. Wasn't, wasn't saying or doing anything along that line, but was holding out hope, right? So then I started driving a taxi here in Cranbrook when I was able to finally get a work permit. And I picked up a young man one afternoon and he was going back out to the airport to catch a flight back to Vancouver. And he was talking about, he was, he was uh, getting a degree in journalism. And I kind of had an interest at that point. I was thinking about maybe doing some writing. So we were talking about that. And somehow that led to a conversation about um, fairness in journalism, you know. Um, and I said, well, I thought the BBC was one of the best that I had ever watched that did a good job of presenting both sides of a case and without forming an opinion, right? Right. And he said, yeah, he said he liked the BBC. And he said, he'd just seen a show recently about this church down in Kansas. <laughs> that, uh, and that was that Louis, Louis Thoreau had done this uh, show called the, the Most Hated Family in America. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of looked in the rearview mirror. I said, I know that. I know that church. So that's my family. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got this look on his face like, huh? Like, did I hear this right? So I just kind of smiled and pulled out my wallet and handed him my license, right? And he just like lost it. He goes, oh my God. He goes, I got to do an interview. And we're, you know, so by the time I got him to the airport, he had, he had made sure that he had my phone number that turned into a, an interview. He wrote a big paper, an article for the, the paper, the, the university paper at the university of BC. And that got, I don't know, at one point, I think it was over a million hits. Wow. And, Suddenly I'm getting, so he, he sent me a message a few days after he published it, said he's got all these people trying to reach me and he didn't want to give my contact information without my permission. So one of those people was David Silverman from the American Atheists. Right. And he wanted me to come. This was in October, I believe. And he wanted me to come speak at the American Atheist Convention in April of the next year. Okay. So by that time I had read. Dawkins book and Hitchens book. And I was really starting to feel because prior to that, being atheist was something you basically you were in the closet about, right? I mean, we just weren't out. Oh, had to be. Yeah. And, you know, we grew up with the, the idea that the very word atheist on your, on your tongue could put you in hell. Right. So there's all that stuff working against me. So I had to spend a lot. I had to make the decision to not only um, at least align myself to the extent I was given a talk there, um, if not admit that I was atheist. And I had to make the decision that I was going to be actively opposed to my family's message. Right, right. And that was terrifying. I got to tell you, I, it took me several months to, to finally come to terms with the decision I was making. Oh, no but question. A, yeah. a part of that whole uh, picture was that I'm starting to hear from people who are being negatively impacted by my father's campaign. Right. And so ultimately concluded that even though I, I abhor publicity, I, you know, I took a public speaking class in college and I said, the one thing I know is I will never be a public speaker. Right? <laughs> so all of these things working in opposition, but I thought that because I was in the position I was in, not by my own choosing that I had a responsibility. So, I ended up 
going and speaking at the American Atheists. And uh, it all went from there, right? Yeah. Was there a definitive point where you said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much an atheist now? Was there something that, that triggered that? Or again, was that a graduated kind of a spectrum of fading into it? The last few years I was married in, in California, I had, had picked up a book by um, Michael Shermer. Uh, I think it was called The Science of Good and Evil. And I had been entertaining a lot of these thoughts, basically came up with them on my own or, you know, stuff I was reading. But this book, for whatever reason, it resonated with me and, and it fits so much of the ideas that I was holding quietly in my mind. And I remember running downstairs and I'm just, I'm all excited and talking to my wife about this. And she's kind of looking at me like, yeah, you're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was a, it was a profound moment for me. And then good other books I was reading and other conversations I was having, it was just, it all was starting to fall into place and slowly it was becoming okay to say it out loud. And then when I read Hawkins book, that pretty much sealed it for me. Once uh, you're talking about the God delusion. That's right. Yeah. Uh, once, yeah. Once that came out and then Hitchens, uh, what God is not great. That was when that whole atheist movement became quite big, right? About 10 years ago or however. Yeah. Yeah. So then you were, you were invited to the Kamloops conference. I was invited. You and I met yeah. uh, for the first time. That's when I found out who you were and that you were the son of this notorious uh, megalomaniac. And <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of the God hates fags and him focusing so much attention on easy targets, because you got the Bible, Leviticus says, man shall not lie down you know, with man. It is an abomination before the Lord. Uh, so now he's got his target. How did you end up working with the LGBT community? Because you, you've done a fair amount of work with that yeah. community. Is, am, am I correct? Yeah. And, and I would say it, it, it was because of the, the um, you know, going back to what I said a little bit ago, that there were so many people reaching out to me who were being harmed by it. And so not only was I telling my story, and uh, I was also hearing from a lot of people and, and saw it as a, an essential part of the effort I was putting out to be supportive of the efforts to bring equality to gays in, in the U.S. Canada didn't have so many problems, but I mean, it's still a challenge up here. There's, there still is an element of evangelicals or whatever, you know, conservatives who for sure like to, uh, to beat them up verbally and, and otherwise. Right. So, um, yeah, it just it seemed like a natural, you know, dovetailed off of what I was doing as far as speaking out against their cam campaign. So, mm -hmm. and what was the extent of your involvement with the community? Was that in Calgary predominantly or? Well, no, I mean, I was, um, I was, uh, actively involved with a, a group in Kansas. Um, this gal there named Stephanie Mott was spearheading the, the growth of the, uh, transgender community there. So I went and gave the keynote speech there and for their first annual convention. And um, so anywhere basically that there was, I thought that I, if I lent my voice that it would be supportive of, of efforts to mm. change the laws sure. or change sure. the attitudes of people. That's where I was in, okay. in Calgary. Specifically, I got involved with the center for inquiry and was, was running the, the Calgary grants there and gave mm -hmm. me the opportunity to, to bring a lot of, voices for the, the humanist and secular community and, and the, the uh, pro-gay community to speak there as well. The talk I gave in Calgary on the book tour was, was at a gay bar, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, uh, Sapien. and then, what was that book? Was that how to be a, remind me. What was that's the pain in, pain in, in the, the ass, ass book. Yeah. 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 That was a, that was a, a great tour and it was a, a lot of fun to, to see everyone and to, to meet you and, and to uh, then be able to, to come back and, and see you in Calgary again um, with the theme of going through fundamental uh, Christian, not just any Christian, but a very, very hardcore, you know, mean spirited form of Christianity coming out and then get escaping from that, becoming an atheist and then, 
talking to various groups and, and telling your story and whatnot. As an American now in Canada, having lived there, having seen how the country has evolved in its various ways, this guy back here, Frank Zappa, he said back in the Reagan days that America is making a slow creep to become a theocratic nation. Mm -hmm. Do you think with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, we're getting a lot closer to seeing America become a theocratic nation? I do. And I think that with uh, the Supreme Court as it's in its uh, current form is going to be terribly destructive. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not done yet. You're saying? No, I think that they're, I think that they're going to go after um, Obergefell. Um, It seems like a very likely target. And Mm -hmm. you've got these people who were dishonest when they were uh, under the spotlight in in the Senate hearing about their intentions. There's no reason to think that they won't overturn that given the opportunity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, some people have suggested even uh, interracial marriage. The I think it's the Loving case. Yeah, um, that'd be a little, little ironic. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, that kind of been off my radar because that seemed settled long before I, you know, my uh, age of consciousness or awareness. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it seems like at this point, um, Trump and and that uh, Senate, when he was in in office, has done incredibly irreparable damage, and we're not we're at the front end of that as far as the the consequences of that. Okay. And and I'm concerned because I don't see when Obama got in, I thought okay, America's finally figuring out the the the, the liberal voices, which are the majority, are finally making inroads. Never in a million years imagined this scenario, you know, 10 short years later. And I don't see a way out at this point because it, everything seems to point to the conservatives going to, you know, regain power again. I know. Well, this is the great experiment, right? That is the United States. And I, I'm doing my thing with critical thinking. You do your thing with your 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 talks and your experiences. Yeah. Um, how polite should we be or do we play their game? Like, sh- should we be looking into the camera saying the reason why this is happening is because of evangelical Christians? I mean, do we just say it? Do we just say that's who voted Trump in? Trump said, you vote me in. I'll put some some uh, justices on the Supreme Court. They will overturn Roe v. Wade. You've been wanting this for 50 years. Vote for me. And he did. He got the large base of the evangelical right. Christians, right? These are the Jerry Falwell leftovers, right? Falwell was fighting for this thing for years, up until the week he died. He he was bragging about how the inroads that they had made against Roe v. Wade. So if the great experiment that is the United States began on enlightenment principles, principles valuing reason and science and cosmopolitanism, you know, seeing everybody as equal, irrespective of any differences whatsoever. And and also of progress, you know, and progress being the, that Luther's 95 Theses, separation of church and state, right? Breaking away from Rome, all of those advancements, all of those great cultural achievements. And now these guys are putting us back to the to medieval time. We're going we're going back instead of forwards here, right? And 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 how did we get there? I, that's the part I don't understand. It's like Obviously, there's a lot more pieces to this than than I understand that any of us can understand. But it's like we have tapped into the lesser part of our humanity, and I mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how we turn away from that. I it looks hopeless to me at this point. Obviously, it's not. Yeah. I mean, every society goes up and down. And to answer your specific question, Chris, I think we do all of those things. I think that we need to have voices that are just right up in their face. And we need to have uh, reasoned discussion, present evidence, because I'm always big on evidence um, of, of the error of their thinking and mm-hmm. challenge it. And we slowly start clawing back and, and, and uh, winning back some of the enlightenment that we had at some point, right? Right. And this echoes... You know, Abraham Lincoln's statement and Steven Pinker would very creatively take his his thoughts. You know, uh, we we must find people who are better angels of their nature. Right. We must find people 
who put their personal goals and aspirations and those of their families and whatnot aside to become as as Socrates, well, Plato basically said, politicians should enter their job with the clothes on their backs and they should leave office with the clothes on their backs. We'll pay for your for your home and we'll pay for your your food and you'll get a bit of a stipend or whatnot, but you should not be buyable, right? Ideally, the people we need in power are those that cannot be swayed so easily, whether it's the NRA talking about gun control, whether it's saving your job to back an idiot like Trump, right? Whatever the reason is, if we had the right leaders, and I think that's what we're missing these days, is people are depressed because there's no leader they can... We had Obama, right? We had somebody who was a visionary. He was a philosopher. This guy was, you know, he was different. And he was what America needed. And then you get this clown coming in that just turns everything upside down. And, and we're seeing the exact opposite of, of what we thought politics could become. Right? Well, and I think, yeah, because you were talking earlier about uh, one, one aspect of it. I think that it's multifaceted though. And, and that's one of the pieces is the system has changed and become so out of balance. And so that um, the, the, it's the powers, it's the money, it's the, it's the wealth that's going to make the decisions about what happens, what, what rules we play by in this country. And mm -hmm. if, if we're, when we're talking about change, like real change, that'll be substantive and long lasting. That's one of the changes we have to make. We have to literally dismantle that whole system. And mm -hmm. how do we do it? I don't know how we do it without a revolution. That's kind of where my mind goes. The, the whole thing has to be turned on its ear and we have to start over. And that's one of the first things that I would say changes. You've got it. People cannot uh, build wealth by holding public office. That would be one of the requirements because then they become beholden to the money. And I'm with you. I'm with you. And another piece of that, that I think is, how do I put this? It, it concerns me and it has for years this preoccupation that we have in the Western world with uh, individualism. Right. I have worried for years about the unintended consequences of that uh, moving too far that direction as a society. And I think that's another piece of this, that we're so focused on ourselves. When you talk about the better angel of our nature, mm -hmm. why, why, why would we do that? You know, there's there's nothing in it for me. So why would I put myself out there and and risk everything to help another group or another person? That isn't consistent with this idea of individual rights and individualism, right? So I think that's another piece. Of it. And that's more predominant in in America than say Canada. Would you would you say? I think I think it is still. In in America, Canada is moving that direction because we're part of the Western world. We still embrace and engage with that idea that you can't tell me what to do. Mm. My individual rights over the collective good is kind of the broad um, description of that that thinking, right? And we saw that play out with with the with the pandemic and just vaccinations. Yeah. Right? And we've always had that tendency. I, it was really interesting. I, I was reading an article where uh, during the Spanish flu, some of the exact same argument, the exact same signs were popping up all For over sure. in, oh, yeah. uh, in the U.S., right? The, so There were anti-maskers in San Francisco. I mean, it, yeah, it's hauntingly oh. similar to what we experienced in 1917 yeah. and 1918. Yeah, just the incredible. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I, I am, I am hopeful. I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic that you know we used to have a solid middle of common sense, yeah. and you had the fringe people. And what happened was, and I also find that that the media is responsible for this. They they get better ratings if they concentrate on the fringe people. Your father would be on because that would get people riled up, right? And we know, especially online, what gets people more riled up gets more hits and it becomes more popular and it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? 
So what happened is the fringes got big because the media went there because it made them more money or whatever. And then once the fringes got big, that put pressure on the middles to go and join them. Well, certainly you're not going to go that, that other way. So you're going to spread even further, right? So you have your AOCs on the left and you've got your Mitch McConnell's on the right, right? And you have, you have these extremists. You got Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's like dumb and dumber, right? Uh, it's, it's uncanny. And they, they kind of invite it because uh, they put themselves out there and they, they, they don't present very well in terms of being knowledgeable about some very basic aspects of politics. And this is all, I've always wondered this about U.S. politics, how, why somebody completely unqualified can get into office, just whether they're popular or fringe issues that a lot of people happen to like, or you're, you're big into one, one issue like gun, gun freedom or gun control, and you get voted in and it's like uncanny. This is all you need to hold this important office. It's just, it, shouldn't there be a test like Shouldn't you have to have a certain level of education to do this? You're you're making you're making decisions. Congress in the U.S. decides if U.S. goes to war or not, and you want Marjorie Taylor F. and Green to make that decision, and Bobert, her idiot twin sister. Wouldn't you think there would be some kind of test? But but then you got to you got to remind yourself, Chris, that that they there are a whole bunch of people who pull that lever at the voting machine. Correct. To bring them in. What does that say about us as people overall, as, as a society overall, that we're willing to go in and pull a lever that says Donald Trump on it? That's just incredible to me. <laughs> but yeah, you've got you've got power in other places, and they'll take a, a Bobert or a Green or a Trump, and they'll see them as useful idiots. Oh, ab- oh so for you got sure. guys like, Donald, he's he's the consummate politician. He's got it all figured out. Well, yeah, I'll give Trump whatever he wants in this area, and then I'll get what I want, and that builds my power base. So, I I get it. I get how it works, but it shouldn't work that way. In, you're right, but people are not rational sometimes, and you know when you're thinking with your your midbrain, that emotional center. That will always, almost inevitably, override the prefrontal cortex, right? That part of the brain that allows us to think. That, that's the part that is critical thinking. It's the part that says, I know I'm emotional about this topic, but I have the capacity to think my way through it. And that is the most difficult thing to get people to do. And I'm not blaming them, right? I'm not blaming people. That's what it's like today, right? I, I remember reading a book not long ago. I think it was Jonathan Haidt did a book. Yep. Where That's right. He talked about his progression in that in that area of, of study and that the best science today says that's exactly true. As much as we would like to think our rational mind makes the, the choices for us, it's not true. We're the rider and our emotions are the elephant. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, not an easy thing to control. And and it is it has been thusly so, you know, since we walked upright. And the fact of the matter is in all this time, we still haven't been able to develop the capacity to be humble in in our ignorance. And it's very difficult for people to accept. The more knowledge I've gained in my life in terms of facts about things in this world, the more humbled I've become at how little I know about how the universe really works. And I think all teaching, all education should begin with a recognition of ignorance and that it's okay. It's really not a problem. That's where knowledge begins. It begins from points of, I don't know. And is it hubris? Is it ego? What is it that gets in the way that makes us, is it status? We want to appear as though we're more knowledgeable than we are, that we want that kind of respect or, right? Is that, speaking of your father, like he he must have gotten a bit of a high by being a leader and being the one people would listen to. Yeah, I don't know. See, I never saw him that way. I just saw him as this overbearing, all-powerful right. figure, right? Sure. I, don't, I mean, I, he he was comfortable in that role, right? And I don't know if he got, he must have gotten some something out of it. But uh, to me, he was just 
I grew up thinking that he was, he truly believed this stuff. He was so passionate about it. Oh, I remember many times. No question. And behind the pulpit and he would be turning the, just like caressing the pages of that Bible and turning it and tears would be streaming down his face. Hard for me to think that that was an act. I think yeah. he really brought his own uh, message, right? So. Yeah, for sure. And that makes it all the more dangerous because when you've devoted yourself, you know, to that level of commitment, yeah. you're never going to get out. It's like, you know, being in a perpetual metaphysical K-hole. You're just stuck in there. And it's also this, this sunk cost fallacy. You've devoted so much of your life and so much of your time and energy and money towards believing in this one singular thing. I'm not giving it up now. And I'm, if you try to show me evidence against what I believe, I will double down. You're just going to piss me off. You're going to make me really angry. And don't forget, narcissists have very fragile egos. So if you show them up in any way, they lose it. Like they, narcissists hate, they won't, might not show it uh, in, in front of a large crowd or whatnot, but they'll, they'll go into a room and, and demo it just because how dare somebody mess with your, you know, your, your capacity, you know, you're right. So what are they doing? Um, it's, it's a very dangerous psychological state. I'm going to finish off with one last question. It's a theoretical question, Nate. We know that the worst human beings throughout history, uh, your Hitler's Mao's Stalin's, Paul Potts, uh, we, we know that these people were more than likely psychopaths, sociopaths, but almost every one of them was a narcissist. When narcissist personality disorder, NPD, coincides with sociopathy or psychopathy, you get a really, really dangerous mix. We now can identify biomarkers for certain types of identifying uh, psychological capacities like narcissistic personality disorder, uh, psychopathy, sociopathy. As the science improves more and more and more, the frequency of people possessing genes that make them uh, care for themselves more than any other person, never be able to admit that they're wrong, uh, have zero empathy for the pain that others experience, the usual traits that you find in those types of mental health conditions. As we're able to identify them further into the future, do we have an obligation to then, uh, in other words, what are we going to do with this genotype? I mean, and I, it sounds like eugenics, right? But let's face it, the worst people in the history of humankind had these genetic traits. Now, we want to be fair. These are little babies with these genetic traits that are going to grow up to be monsters. Not all of them. You know, some of them become CEOs. Some of them, they, they adjust, right? And they live their lives out and they don't harm as much as others. But the really nasty ones throughout history had these traits. How do you think moving forward when we have this type of information, do we, do we try to understand and deal with this social phenomenon while being fair to them because they didn't choose their genotype. That's a little minority report. It is. It is. It's. Uh, I. I. I mean, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about that. I, my my initial reaction is rather than um, thinking in terms of do we castrate them, you know that that level of of reaction. Do do we use science to help us figure out how to modify it and minimize the harm and maybe bring them closer to uh, uh, what would be considered norm as far as how they, they interact and um, acknowledge the world around them as opposed to um, destroying them in some way, right? That To me, we use science to try to improve their circumstances and minimize the harm that they might be able to cause. Right. Right. It'll be interesting knowing that we have the technology now, the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which can actually locate and snip out faulty DNA and replace it. So say there, there are genes, yeah, there are genes that will cause a person to be deaf. You can literally in utero cut that out. And so your child will be born and will be able to hear if you choose, if you so choose. So let's say in utero, we find out, oh, Mrs. Jones, your son's a psychopath. 
a narcissistic psychopath. Like they can identify down to that level. I'm I'm very curious to what extent, you know, uh, a, we try to control for all kinds of things, right? Mostly people just want their kid. They want, just want their kids to be healthy. But if we can tweak certain things in utero, do we have an obligation to future generations to identify the traits that the worst people in history have had and then try to modify that? Or do we wait until later on in life and then give that person the option? It's kind of like clockwork orange, isn't it? You were born this way. You're a really nasty person. You're never going to change. But we'll offer that. We'll offer that to you if you want to undergo gene therapy. Like, is it going to, I'm wondering, Brave New World stuff, could we actually yeah. be headed in that direction? I worry that that if you if you waited, that the way they are is such a norm for them. And it's kind of like when you take someone who's bipolar and you, you get them on the right drugs, then they don't want to take the drugs because as destructive as that bipolarism is in their lives, it's their norm. It's what it's where they feel best. Yeah. Especially if they're creative, right? Yeah. So if you got someone you're saying, you know, you're going to be a serial killer if we don't do something about it. Um, would they be inclined to say, well, I don't want to be a serial killer? Or would they say, well, a serial <laughs> killer sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> you know, so you can't, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one, right? And then you've got that. We're back about individualism and you can't yeah. tell me what to do. This is my body, my That's decision, it. that kind of thing. And you're playing God. You're playing God. Yeah. So it seems almost like, a, yeah, it's just, a, it's an exercise. It's a, it's a mental exercise. I don't see how it could ever happen. I'm, I'm, I love the idea of providing uh, potential parents and the parents of young kids, all the information that's available out there to help them make choices like that. But, um, yeah, I don't know if it'd be much good once they're mature enough to make their own decision. Well, sir, it's going to be a brave new world. I hope to, uh, be sticking around long enough to see how things eventually turn out. But if not, we can just hope the singularity shows up a little sooner than later. <laughs> Yeah. And then we can preserve our experiences forever. And you and I will have this conversation to infinity and beyond. Very so, nice. Anyhow, Nate, I want to thank you for being a guest. Uh, it was great seeing you. Give my best to the family. And uh, I'll uh, I'll talk again to you real soon. Sounds good. Thanks very, very much for having me on, Chris.